Welcome to the Ridley College Chapel podcast. Our mission is to equip men and women for God's mission in a rapidly changing and increasingly complex world. For more information, visit ridley.edu.au. Hebrews chapter 13 verses 15 to 25. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. Pray for us. We are sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to live honourably in every way. I particularly urge you to pray so that I might be restored to you soon. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will, And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Brothers and sisters, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation, for in fact, I have written to you quite briefly. I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released. If he arrives soon, I will come with him to see you. Greet all your leaders and all the Lord's people, those from Italy, send you their greetings. Grace be with you all. As we come to our time in uh, the Word of God, this this final week of semester, let us pray. Our Heavenly Lord, we thank you for the grace that is ours in our great Shepherd, Jesus Christ. And we pray we will remain in his pasture. We will love our fellow sheep and we will saviour the sweet mercies of our Lord Jesus as they come to us in the power of his blood, the power of his resurrection and the power of his exaltation. And it is in his name and the hope of attaining the resurrection of the dead that we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Uh, Some time ago, I was having an argument with a friend about uh, whether it's useful to eat lettuce while you're dieting. I mean, the argument is it takes more energy to digest the the lettuce than you actually get from the lettuce itself. And I I wasn't sure about this. So, I mean, the idea of like when you're on a diet, eat lots of lettuce because you're actually burning more calories than you're taking in. I mean, that, that, was, that was the argument we were having. And I said, no, I don't think that's right. So I actually started investigating the nutritional value of lettuce. Turns out I was right. There actually is some carbohydrate in lettuce. But then I went down the rabbit hole even further, actually where the rabbits were because they liked the lettuce. <laughs> and there is quite some difference between the nutritional value of the different types of lettuces. Okay, just so you know, and I found out the, the least nutritional valuable lettuce is the iceberg 
lettuce. It's not doesn't really. It's mostly water, not much in it. Uh, but romaine lettuce actually is pretty good. It's got eight calories, one to two grams of carbohydrates, low in fiber, but good in minerals, cal- uh, calcium, phosphorus, magnesium, potassium, a uh, bit of uh, low in sodium, lots of vitamin C, vitamin K, and lots of folate. Lots of folate in it too. So it's it's actually pretty good. Um, uh, it's not as healthy as kale, but I submit lettuce does taste better than kale, irrespective of the nutritional value. And I never like I never like putting kale in my smoothie or anything. Um, now, why am I telling you this about lettuce? <laughs> because there is a lot of lettuce in the Book of Hebrews. And what is more, what is more, I know that was the corniest of all Sunday school dad jokes, uh, but I I submit to you the let us passages are some of the most important exhortations in the entire Bible. You know, and these are things about perseverance, persistence, continuing on in the race. Let us, therefore, make every effort to enter that race so no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who is ascended to heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. Let us then approach God's throne with grace, with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find help in our time of need. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from the acts that lead to death and of faith in God. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. These lettuce passages, I think, are some of the most important in the book and indeed the entire New Testament. Now, know what the author does. He doesn't say, you should go and do all these things. He talks in the second person plural. This is something that we do together. He counts himself one with the community who are in this struggle, who are in this contest, who are in this race. And together they go on this journey. They are the ones who must still enter the rest that God has promised his people. They are the ones who must persevere in the rest, uh, persevere in the race, I should say. And it's together they need to ascend the mountain of the Lord. They need to enter the city of God. And here in chapter 13, verse 15, we have the final let us passage where the author says, through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise. And it's a, a great summary of where the author takes his readers. Now, the therefore is obviously relating to the previous material, but this, this chapter here is part of a section that goes all the way back to chapter 10. Chapter 10, he talks about the efficacy, uh, the effectiveness of the blood of Jesus in providing an atonement for our sins. And then chapter 11, you've got this, this great hall of faith, these footsteps of people, the various uh, 
the, the saints of old, the various martyrs, the heroes of the Israelite faith and the Israelite tradition, including some of the early church as well. And then from that, he launches in chapter 12 into these exhortations unto what we should do. Throw aside sin, keep in the race, keep going up the mountain and the city of God. And then chapter 13, we have these various exhortations which begin to come to a close in this chapter. But what he wants us to do is through Jesus. Jesus is the one who mediates all our worship. That's good to know. You know, when you're praying, when you're worshiping, Jesus provides the filter before everything gets to God. Everything we do is done through Jesus. Through Jesus, we, we offer up to God, and what we offer him is a sacrifice of praise. Now, th- this is a little bit of a paradox because sacrifice in the ancient world was a literal sacrifice. It meant the, the killing of the animal. I mean, you can read about this in the book of Leviticus. You can read about this in the Greco-Roman world, the way they would do their various sacrifices for the, for the cult of Artemis or, or Jupiter or Neptune or whoever it was. I mean, the language here is similar to what Paul talks about in Romans 12. Uh, and we, uh, He says that we are living sacrifices, which would mean kind of like bloodless sacrifice. So we offer to God a sacrifice of praise. It's not the cultic worship of the temple. It is the worship of those who are redeemed by the blood of Jesus. And that, the author says, is a type of fulfillment of the various sacrifices and offerings made in the temple. And if you look there in verse 15, he we, we, specifies what they are, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. Now, again, that stand, stands in contrast to the normal way of worship. In, in the ancient world, worship was largely a form of ritual, and yet we're called here to this sacrifice of praise, the profession of our faith. And one thing I've, I've got to note here is a lot of students – certainly before they come to college and sometimes even when they're at college, have an implicit Marcionite theology. That's kind of like, you know, in the Old Testament, what we have is religion, you know, ritual, you know, really weird kind of laws and rules and regulations and, you know, one of, the, one of the most difficult things I've ever had to do, um, or frustrating, I should say, is when I was at a college and they used to set an essay for the Old Testament students on what is the purpose of the Old Testament purity laws. And students would usually write stuff like, have absolutely no idea what these laws are for. They seem pretty weird and stupid, but I guess God can do what he likes. There was, was essays that would like that. It was amazing. And because we've, we've got the idea that the Old Testament teaches religion, but the New Testament gives us spirituality. So people in the Old Testament are religious, but in the New Testament now, we're spiritual, you know? My, my, have, you heard, have you heard the mantra? My, my, you know, my faith in Jesus, it's not religion, it's a relationship. Have you heard, what, I mean, it's true, I guess, how you define it, but we read that back into the Old Testament. But did you know, there is a lot of spirituality actually in the Old Testament, yeah, I know. <laughs> Who would have thought? Who would have thought? I mean, th- sacrifice and praise go together. These, these are not t- two separate things. So when the author says offer a sacrifice of praise, he's not saying, well, sacrifice is bad and silly, all that yucky blood and cleansing, and now we have praise. Actually, in the Old Testament, sacrifice 
and praise went together. Think of uh, Psalm 54, 6. I will sacrifice a free will offering to you. I will praise your name, Lord, for it is good. Or Jonah 2, 9. But I will give shouts of grateful praise and will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. Sacrifice and praise goes together. And, and the Old Testament even teaches that it's not just a matter of, of rote ritual, doing things because we've always done that way. The, the, in the Old Testament, the authors, the prophets, the Old Testament saints knew that purely performing rituals without heartfelt devotion was wrong. That's why it's, it's Jesus who says this, but Jesus quoting Hosea when he says, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Or think of Psalm 51, 17. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart, God, you will not despise. Now, my point in laboring that is when the author talks about a sacrifice of praise, he's not saying, well, we don't need the sacrifices of the Old Testament. Now we just offer praise. The point is rather that the sacrificial system of the Old Testament reaches not its nullification, not its antitype, but its very fulfillment in the praise we offer in the blood of Jesus that does everything that the temple cultists once did for the people of Israel. That's what, that's what I believe the author is, is getting at. But what, what, what is this, this sacrifice of praise that we offer? Well, it's two things. He says it's the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. The most basic confession of the early Christians was Jesus is Messiah and Lord. He is Israel's king and he is the Lord of the whole world. The other way we profess our faith is through the recitation of the creeds. Now, being good Anglicans, I'm sure most of you know that you're expected to say the Apostles' Creed every day and the Nicene Creed on Sunday. And I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, Reese, but the Athanasian Creed at Christmas. Trinity Sunday. At Trinity Sunday. I knew there was a day for it. Am I meant to do that? Now, why do we, why do we have these creeds? Well, the creeds are there to be a little, little summaries of what the faith, our faith is or what are the essential elements. And they don't exhaust our faith, but they're there for a purpose. They're the purpose of summarizing what do we believe as the people of God. And I submit to you, in our day and age, those creeds are more important than ever because creeds basically give you the safe space to do your faith. You, you go beyond that. You go outside that. You're, you're wandering beyond the barbed wire fence, okay? You're wandering down onto the rocky grounds towards the cliff, okay? The, the creed is also our defiance against the world. We say this is our faith. This is our story. This is what defines us. We will accept no other creed, no other dogma. We live by this story and no other. That's why we profess the creed. That's where we offer thanksgiving. That's where we set forth our very identity as the people of God because we identify ourselves principally by the fact that we are baptized into one Lord, one faith, and one story, and one Savior. 
That's what we do. That is the fruit of lips that openly professes his name. But there's more to it than mere profession. There is also performance. We are meant to be doing good and sharing with others. Now, if you are a parent, this is should be the number one verse you should be teaching your children. Do not forget to do good and to share with others with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Children, children are not natural at sharing. Um, I know this. I've had, I've had several, or oh, four children. Um, uh, if you doubt the doctrine of total depravity, you've never had toddlers. Okay, it's unnatural. But we are meant to be sharing. We're not meant to be stingy or selfish or even worse is apathetic. I remember, I remember many years ago, I was, I was, I was, when I was working and I, and I was working with a guy and I, and I was saying, you know, I, I did a sponsor child. You know, I was, I was only about like you know, 22, 23. I, did, I was telling a friend about a sponsor child I had. And he goes, you know, like, what's, what's, the, what's the point of doing that? I mean, there's, there's so much need in the world. You, you can't possibly make a difference. You know, what? You know, one child, it's not going to make any difference in the world. And, and it reminded me of a story about a guy who was walking along a beach and all these starfish had, had like thousands of starfish had washed up on the beach and there was, there was one old guy who was picking up one starfish at a time and throwing them back in the ocean. And, and someone said to him, like, you can't possibly throw all the starfish back. I mean, you can't even throw enough back to make a difference. And he picked up one starfish, threw it in the water and said, it sure made a difference to that one. <laughs> we can make a difference by the little things we do, sharing with those in need. Now, I'll be honest with you, my, my, my natural inclination is not to share. I, I, I am a little bit more of a, of a hoarder. Um, you know, I, when, we're at, when we're at morning tea, I do like to guard my, my little, my little um, sausage roll or, or my little canapé, and I like to make sure I've got in first and I don't lose anything. But we should have a natural inclination of sharing. Um, I mean, Jesus told the Apostle Paul, it's a ble- it is better to give than to receive. I, I never understood that until, until I start- had children at Christmas. And as much as I always do enjoy getting my own presents, a lot, I do really do like any, I must say I do enjoy more seeing the kids open their presents. I enjoy that. I enjoy giving. We are meant to enjoy the generosity as a spiritual discipline. Okay, it's not a matter of hoarding or or, or wanting to gratify our own things. We, we've we've got to be far more. Uh, we've got to be continually cultivating the virtue of generosity. And th- these are things that we do continually. The the danger is though we, we can you know being continually generous can feel taxing. It can feel like everyone wants a piece of you. I mean, it's not just financial giving. It's giving, it's giving of your time. You can feel like a loaf of bread and everyone just wants a slice of you. I mean, do you ever, do you ever feel like that? Do you ever feel like that? You're a loaf of bread and everyone just is, is taking their slice. And those who work in caring professions even refer to things such as compassion fatigue. I, I learned this from, this from army chaplains because when you're constantly surrounded by people in need, who've experienced sorrow, tragedy, and in trauma, you can become a little bit desensitized to it, okay? Or you, you, you develop what's called compassion fatigue. It's not like you become a heartless monster, but it's kind of exhausting your, 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 your moral and personal reserves to show compassion. 
What we need then is to recharge that. And often the best way to recharge it is when people are generous towards us, when we have compassion shown towards us. That's what we need. The way to avoid compassion fatigue, I think, is do not forget your first love, okay? That the compassion we show is not reciprocal. I'm going to be nice to Bob because maybe Bob will be one day be nice to me. We do this because this is how we offer our praise and worship to God, okay? We offer the profession of our faith and we do good even when we cannot receive anything back from someone, when they have no capacity, no ability. That is our sacrifice of praise. In verses 17 to 18, the author continues and he talks about our leaders and how we should pray for them. Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that will be of no benefit to you. And he adds to that, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear, for, for, sorry, we are sure that we have a clear conscience and a desire to live honorably in every way. I particularly urge you to pray so that I may be restored to you soon. Uh, it is good to pray for your leaders, to support them and encourage them. If you don't already know this uh, yet, you will discover it soon. But leading can be very, very taxing. And people can get very agitated over the smallest things. The curate preached for 43 minutes. He must be taught a lesson. You can, you can get something like that happening over the smallest things. I've recently been counselling a, uh, a person who received a, uh, a bit of negative feedback in ministry that seemed unfair. I mean, you're going, get, you're going to get various types of feedback. You'll get some moments of feedback where you have to very humbly accept, no, actually, I think you're right. I, I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have done that. I should have done it differently or whatever. You'll get some criticism like, oh, yeah, maybe, but I'll, I'll think about that. And then you'll get some stuff that is really unfair, kind of hurtful and really discouraging. And you will feel like just throwing it all away and saying, don't these people know how hard I work for them? Everything I've done for them. And, you know, you, 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 seriously, there'll be moments in ministry where you think you are doing the impossible for the perpetually ungrateful. There'll be days where it will feel like that. I am doing the impossible for the perpetually ungrateful. And there are moments where you will... Where, where you need to pray. You need to pray, Lord, I am weary in your work, but I am not weary of it. And you need to ask God to strengthen you more and more because there will be discouraging moments. I mean, this is why I like Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of this passage. I think he puts it very wonderfully. He says, be responsive to your pastoral leaders. Listen to their counsel. They are alert to the condition of your lives and work under the strict supervision of God. Contribute to the joy of their leadership, not its drudgery. Why would you want to make things harder for them? Do, do, you, know, do you know what is absolutely ministerial steroids? Random encouragement. You should, you should go and do acts of random encouragement for the people who serve in your church. Now, it's so simple. It can be simply a sticky note on their Bible. It can be an email. Just saying one positive thing, you know, randomly, okay? It's like the anabolic steroids of ministry. 
I mean, it's such, an, it's such a ministry enhancement, it could possibly be banned. Because it gives some, because the people who get it get an unfair advantage in their ministry. Okay, if, if you really do appreciate the ministry of the men and women who minister to you, around you, to your children or in your community, just giving them a simple act of encouragement can have a profound effect, particularly if they're ha- having a bad day and a, and a bad week. You know, we, 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 don't, we don't pray for them that they'll, you know, get a book deal, have some massive platform or all these sorts of things. Uh, no, I mean, and the author, what he wants people to pray for, uh, he, he prays that they would have a clear conscience and they would live honorably in every way. You know, in ministry, your, your number one, your number one um, uh, commodity, or, or dare I say, the, the center of gravity, the one thing without which you cannot conduct your ministry is integrity. It doesn't matter you know, how good your relationship skills, how good your organizing skills, how you can network, how you can schmooze the bishops or work a parish council meeting uh, or you know, how good you are at teaching or leading a Bible study. If you don't have integrity, uh, your ministry has nothing, a clear conscience, living an honorable life. Uh, I, was, I was doing an internship at a, at a church and I was, you know, spent some time in the church and I spoke with the, with the senior pastor and he said something that's really stuck with me. And he met with me, he says, he says, Mike, I know you're gifted. He says, what I don't know yet is whether you're godly. And, and, and he, because you need both. And in fact, it's better to have someone who's godly and behave and doesn't necessarily be completely gifted. I mean, it's good if you've got both, I guess. But number one that counts in ministry has got to be godliness. It's got to be integrity. So pray for that for your leaders, that, that, that they would have integrity. They would have, and this can be taken the wrong way, they can also have purity of motives and actions. Because those who lead, and this includes all of us, all of us, can be tempted in various ways to have a little bit of self-interest, to become conceited, vain, ambitious in all sorts of different ways. Now, of course, we've got to add a very important caveat here, don't we? Uh, We need to pray for our leaders, uh, but we don't want to venerate them to the point that they get big head and they become conceited. They become arrogant. Uh, We want to pray for our leaders. We don't want to worship them. And we could give uh, many examples of what happens when leaders do become puffed up by their success. When it all, and it becomes all about the ministry and the platform and the church. And this is one thing I've learned. When, when success becomes an idol, bullying becomes a sacrament. When success becomes an idol, bullying becomes a sacrament. You've got to remember that. We need servant leaders not toxic leaders, no tolerization of spiritual abuse or bullying, okay? And the end does not justify the means. So no matter how successful one person's uh, ministry is, that never recuses themselves for accountability, for aspiring to have a mantle of ministry that has a clear conscience and lives an honorable way of life. Then coming to verses 20 to 21, we have, I think, possibly the most famous part of the book of Hebrews, the famous benediction. 
It tells us, I mean, it, 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 it does what I like to do. It recapitulates so much of the book. It tells us about the God of peace. It, it celebrates the blood of the eternal covenant, the blood that gives cleansing, that new covenant that Israel was promised. And now even the Gentiles have been brought into. It celebrates the theme of Christ's resurrection, his exaltation. The exaltation that the author, by the way, calls an anchor for the soul. It also shifts from talking about Jesus as the great high priest, now as the shepherd who tends over his people. Now, I, I don't like the standard translations here where it says that the, the purpose of the shepherd is to equip you with everything. I think, I think a better translation here, which we get the old KJV, is to perfect you, to make you complete and mature in every good work. And what we have to do is work out what is pleasing to him. Now, this is a bit of the tension we get between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. On the one hand, you know, it's what God does for us, but in other things, we're meant to appropriate that and respond in certain ways. It's a little bit like Philippians 3.12, you know, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But why? Because God is at work in you to will and work out his good pleasure. This is why I had a bunch of students. I said, can you summarize this for me? And they said, work out what God has worked in. I think that's a good summary. And that's what we're called to do in this benediction. Through all the grace, the blessings received, work out what we have worked in. And so concludes the book of Hebrews beyond a few final greetings. Now, today is the day we celebrate the life of Bishop Ridley, the Bishop of London and Westminster, who died on the 16th of October, 1555. You could say that his life was one where he did offer a sacrifice of praise. He offered great serve. He advanced the cause of the Reformation in England, the recovery of the apostolic gospel, and help it take root amongst the various parishes and cathedrals of England. I mean, he was involved in the vestment controversy. There was a lot there. But he also did other things. He helped establish places to deal with homeless men and women and children. And, of course, it was Ridley who paid the ultimate sacrifice. He could have had any number of careers open to a man of himself with many opportunities, but he decided on the ministry in the church. He could have fled with other exiles, but he stayed. And along with Hugh Latimer and eventually Thomas Cranmer, he offered a sacrifice of praise on that pyre. We should remember the names, the stories of our ancestors, our brothers and sisters, our grandfathers and grandmothers in the faith, those who have served God with a clear conscience and have served him honorably. Men and women who add their names to the great hall of faith in Hebrews 11, a hall that we too are destined to add our own names to one day. And on that note, let's pray. Our heavenly Lord, we are grateful that we do have a great high priest who calls us into his presence. And we pray so long as we must, as so long as we have spirit and strength in our bodies, we will offer to you the sacrifice of praise. And may the lamb who was slain receive the worship for which he is due. 
And we pray this to God our Father in the name of Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.